You're listening to the Pharmacy Podcast Network. Since 2009, the Pharmacy Podcast Network has led the podcasting space for the pharmacy industry. This network of pharmacists and pharmacy technicians leads the podcasting charts with more than 2 million downloads, 40 different stations, and new episodes every week. The Pharmacy Podcast Network is the number one podcast for the pharmacy professional. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, CastBox, and all your favorite podcast players. Join the Pharmacy Podcast Nation today. Pharmacy benefit managers, better known as PBMs, are responsible for negotiating payment rates for a large share of prescription drugs distributed in the United States. Recently, state Medicaid systems, policymakers, and national pharmacy associations have expressed concern that certain PBMs' business practices may not be consistent with public policy goals to improve the value of pharmaceutical spending. This podcast series is all about PBM reform. Listen to the discussions, share these podcasts, and help build a new pharmacy payer system which supports our independent community pharmacies, encourages fair and transparent competition in the marketplace, and most importantly, is designed to deliver the best patient care. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the PBM Reform Podcast. I'm Monique Whitney. I am your host for this episode. And this time out, we are engaging in a conversation about preemption and how often it's been used by pharmacy benefit managers as an excuse for everything from not being regulated at the state level to not following state law to not paying a simple sales tax. It's it's been a, a, I would say, a a long time excuse that might just finally be seeing its day. And we have a, a group of panelists here today to talk about what's been happening in Louisiana, particularly around this issue. It's my very great pleasure and honor to introduce and welcome our guests. I'd like to start with Randall Johnson, who is the CEO and president of Louisiana Independent Pharmacies Association, or LIPA. Hi there. Thanks, Monique, for having us. We look forward to the conversation we can have, and we look forward to gathering information from pharmacists throughout the nation that we can all work together on making certain that the law is followed and the patients have access to their choice of pharmacy provider. I appreciate that. And that's one of the things that I think is a hallmark of LIPA. You all are always so generous and so willing to share the information that you're gaining and some of the things that you're doing, which are, are always interesting and creative. And uh, I would say sometimes even downright fun. I would also like to introduce MJ Terbun. She is a pharmacist, a longtime pharmacist, health policy expert. She is the retired director of pharmacy for Louisiana Medicaid. And we are so honored to have you, MJ. Welcome. Thank you, Monique. And then I'm also pleased to introduce a special individual. So J.R. Whaley is life as attorney and has been their attorney for some time. And he already knows this, uh, but I am going to be asking him uh, what his favorite moments are and what he likes or doesn't like, or just what he thinks about the whole process of representing pharmacies and this huge, huge fight against pharmacy benefit manager abuse. But to start with, JR, welcome. How are you today? Thank you, Monique. It's good to be with you and good to be with the group. And it's it's an honor to, to represent independent pharmacies in this fight because it's a uh, 
it's the it's the it's the not only the right fight but it's the right side of the fight i think so too there's a lot of us who think that randall i wonder if you would just start by telling the people who are listening a little bit about lipa i know about lipa because i have the pleasure of working with you and your pharmacies for some time now but i would love for people to know a little bit more about about the organization especially given that you're celebrating a pretty big milestone year this year well, that's right, Monique. We are 20 years old this year. and LIPA is an association of independent pharmacies who recognized some 20 years ago that they needed to focus on the business, the business practice, and the ability to continue to serve their patients and to have access to their patients. In this changing world where we saw so much interaction uh, be interrupted by folks that don't touch the medication, that don't see the patient, but are getting in the middle of the activities between the patient and their physician and their pharmacist delivering good quality healthcare that improves the health and the health outcomes. And you have an interesting situation there in Louisiana because I think you said there's a large number of parishes that don't have a large pharmacy. They, they do depend on their independent pharmacies. Well, that is, we've got uh, four and three quarter million people in Louisiana spread across 64 parishes, as we call what the rest of the nation re refers to as counties. And we've got uh, seven major areas, and we call them major areas. Some people would be surprised to, to recognize that, you know, we've got 35,000 people, and that's a major town in Louisiana. <laughs> And uh, but as as those are spread out, yeah, as those are spread out across the way, it it uh, they're at the, the different points of the state, and then a couple right in the middle, uh, with uh, Alexandria in the middle of uh, North Central Louisiana, Lafayette and Baton Rouge, sort of in the middle of South Louisiana, and the area that we have being spread all across our state that um, is very rural. And in those rural communities, the most accessible healthcare provider by far is your independent pharmacy. In fact, in so many of our parishes, uh, they don't have a doctor that's, that's got a full-time practice in their parish. They're depending on the pharmacist and the pharmacist to, uh, to contact the doctor. That's been a real success with community independent pharmacies is the willingness of that small business healthcare provider and entrepreneur to reach out to that patient's other healthcare providers and have that face-to-face -face continuum that co connects everyone together for the betterment of the whole good. And so what we're gonna be talking about today pertains to Louisiana Medicaid. And when we're talking about some of these rural communities, this would be a good time for listeners to get the picture of Louisiana Medicaid uh, how many people depend on it, you know, sort of what the makeup is. And Jay, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about Louisiana Medicaid and what it means to the people there. Well, Louisiana Medicaid is a great resource for the people here in Louisiana. We have, and Randall can tell you the number, I'm not familiar with the number of Medicaid eligibles. Uh, it's probably well over what, a million point three million lives or maybe more at this time. Um, it's quite a network of, uh, you know, citizens, Medicaid providers, and the pharmacists play a huge role 
in um, assisting the Medicaid program. And as the Medicaid pharmacy director, at the time I was in the program, we had over 1,200 pharmacy providers, and there were probably divided half and half between independent and chain pharmacies. And the citizens were quite... Um, involved in the program as well because we serve so many people and serve such a large budget of the Medicaid program. Um, so it was very, um, it was it was pretty much a fun job at the time I was there. I don't know how fun it is today with the, all the intricacies that go on in dealing in the pharmacy practice world today, uh, but uh, it, it's quite uh, involved and LIPA plays a huge part in assisting the Medicaid program in the functionality of serving the people and in the policies and how it affects the pharmacy providers. And as we're talking about that, I'm just thinking about, you know, in other parts of the country, there there's expansion of Medicaid because of this last year. So as we're recording this episode, today is the one-year mark when and the World Health Organization determined that we were in a global pandemic. So it's been a year and it's been so much bigger and pervasive and damaging than I think anyone really could have predicted. Uh, do you, Randall, do you or MJ have any sense of whether you've seen an increase in uh, people needing the assistance of Medicaid? So we really have. In fact, if Louisiana runs with um, some discussion between what is our number one industries in the state, whether it's petrochem and that, or whether it's uh, tourism and hospitality with cities like New Orleans and the food craze we have and the alligator hunts and eating great Cajun food. When you look at those hotels and when you look at those restaurants that haven't been open and haven't been able to fully open because of the constraints with the pandemic, we have seen so many people that have been displaced from what would be their routine employment. So many that we also have to look at what's going on with the petrochem industry and the, the oil and gas and the change to the production of that. We've had nearly half a million people, nearly 500,000 people have added to the Medicaid rolls in the past year in Louisiana with the governor signing a Medicaid expansion bill that allows those persons up to 138, 137% of the federal poverty level to be added to the Medicaid rolls. And um, so we're now at 1.8 million people where 40% of our people are, are Medicaid, Medicaid eligible, Medicaid dependent. The majority of that being handled now through um, some managed care contracts. And in those managed care contracts, we have five contractors using three different PBMs in order to manage the care. And CBS Caremark handles the program really for five, of the, for of the five, three of them. And uh, then we have Optum and Performer X. And Medicaid has also been used as a tool by us in order to interact with those PBMs. And so for everyone who's wondering, where are they going with this conversation? What we're talking about today though it's going to sound really small, actually has a huge impact on this program that we're talking about that so many people are depending on, and especially now in light of the pandemic, the loss of jobs, uh, life still happens. We still you know, have our, our illnesses and we still have need of our medications. And so 
so why I asked you all to be on is because not too long ago, you were in court. You, you have submitted a lawsuit against one of the PBMs, and it has to do with a 10-cent provider fee, which, again, I think to you know someone who didn't understand this might sound like it's just not a whole lot. I mean, 10 cents is 10 cents. But, Randall, I wonder if you would would share with us about what the provider fee is and what's been happening and, and what led you to having to go to court? Well, uh, and NMJ could, could speak to this also with the start of it, but back um, 30 years ago now, our legislature passed a provider fee. And in Louisiana, we have both a sales tax on prescription drugs at the local and municipal level for those that are not government payment programs, but a provider fee on pharmacy, on ambulance services, on uh, nursing homes. We have different opportunities for the providers to offer an input, and that input is being used to draw down Medicaid matching dollars from the federal government under the FMAC program. And we're running a 67% rather routinely, but with this 6% uptick in uh, the COVID uh, allowances that the federal government's giving, we're above a 70% contribution from the federal government to the Louisiana Medicaid program. So that 10 cent fee is due on every outpatient prescription dispensed in or into the state. And into the state has gotten more and more popular as we see the big PBMs trying to push more and more of these patients to have to use their mail order. We felt that that was a case of concern. We met with the department. Um, the department was, it, it's fragmented because it's not the Medicaid program that sees the dollars, it's the fiscal office that sees the dollars. But when you're looking at 90 million prescriptions being filled in Louisiana each year, and you've got a 70% or more input from the federal government, that $9 million that came from the provider fee very quickly turns into uh, $30 million when it comes with the federal government offering you the input for that program. So we saw some problems with uh, payment. Uh, the penalty for not paying that provider fee is simple you lose your permit to be a pharmacy serving citizens of Louisiana. So we saw a problem with that. Uh, we, we addressed that both in state court and then uh, we're JR1. And then we needed to move to some other sources of, uh, of review for that. And maybe I'll let JR speak to that. Yeah, this, this 10 cent provider fee is important for the state Medicaid program and it helps fund the state Medicaid program. And it is important that in a rural and poor state like ours, that we have sufficient funds to draw down those federal dollars. And this 10 cent fee is, is a part of that. And so what when, when a company in this situation Express Scripts affirmatively states, we are not going to follow the law as it relates to Medicare claims, because we believe that Medicare preempts this particular statute requiring reimbursement of the 10 cents to the pharmacist. And so that was the genesis of, of the lawsuit and the request for declaratory action that the, that the judge rule whether or not Medicare in fact preempted the 
particular statute of issue. And if I remember correctly, the pharmacists have been picking this up. Randall said that the penalty for noncompliance is you lose your license in the state of Louisiana. How long were the pharmacies having to make up for this uh, lack of compliance? Well, um, for, for quite a while on Medicare claims, on quite a while on ERISA claims, again, based on the idea of preemption. And as, as the pharmacy community knows, uh, the, the Arkansas Attorney General and, and other Attorney General, Louisiana's Attorney General joined in that, that claim as well on behalf, um, uh, in regard to the ERISA preemption. And just to make sure, Monique, that I'm not talking a, a lot of lawyer ease and legalese, you know, preemption, the, con the legal concept of preemption is, is a simple concept that says that sometimes when Congress takes action, that those, that, that, that action, that law will supersede, will preempt any state law. And so, ERISA is a federal statute. Medicare is a federal statute. So the arguments, and then there, and there's other federal statutes too um, that that aren't relevant to our conversation. But you know the argument for preemption is is that look, Congress has either set up certain standards that conflict with the specific law, or Congress has taken such a broad regulation of a particular field um, that any laws will necessarily conflict with Congress's um, management of that. And therefore you cannot apply and you cannot enforce the, the particular state law. So when we talk about preemption, that's, that's what we're talking about. And the PBMs have taken a broader view of preemption. They did it in the matter of ERISA as it relates to the Supreme Court's decision in Rutledge versus PCMA, and then the the Medicare preemption was what we um, recently dealt with in Louisiana as it relates to the Tencent provider fee. I'm curious to know a little bit about this. So first of all, you mentioned you mentioned ERISA, ERISA so the that is the uh, Employee Retirement Income Securities Act. Uh, so they so that that ruling came out last fall and was unanimously in favor of Arkansas. And so was that ruling an inspiration for the work that you are now doing? Or were you already thinking that there that this preemption didn't apply? Tell us a little bit about about, you know, when you filed the lawsuit and, you know, just just sort of what your view was at that time compared to what was already going on. Well, Randall and MJ and LIPA have been um, uh, fighting in the legislature on behalf of Louisiana pharmacists, as well as the regulatory agencies on behalf of, of Louisiana pharmacists. And so we have dealt with this 10 cent provider fee for, for, for quite a while, because it's not only the 10 cents that the pharmacists are required to remit on every single um, prescription that they fill and that they are to be reimbursed by the plan sponsor. But it's also, so it, it, it's that, it's that physical 10 cents, that, that monetary amount, 
but it's also a reconciling nightmare when the pharmacists have to determine whether or not they have been in fact reimbursed that 10 cents like they're supposed to be under Louisiana law or not, and then what claims for which they've not been reimbursed. And so, so that's been an issue. We actually filed a deck action on behalf of LIPA against the Louisiana Department of Health, which said that the 10 cents is due on each prescription and the Louisiana Department of Insurance, which had sent a letter out saying that it did not have um, uh, oversight over Medicare Advantage plans. Um, in that situation, in that lawsuit, there was a consent judgment in which both departments said, no, it's, it's, it's due on, on all claims. Um, despite that, we have seen some PBMs take the position that Medicare still preempts any judgment, any consent judgment, and or specifically preempts the state statutes on which we are relying on behalf of our members. Um, so this has been an ongoing issue. The particular matter that's pending currently in the Western District of Louisiana, the Federal Western District, um, was filed before the Rutledge decision was decided in the Supreme Court. We felt like the, the, the Rutledge plaintiffs were correct in as it related to ERISA. And likewise, we felt like the, the, that preemption under the Medicare statute was not as broad as ESI uh, Express Scripts was was contending. And we just wanted an answer. You know? um, and so that was the reason for the lawsuit and, and why we filed it. Um, and so it, it was filed before the, the Rutledge decision from the Supreme Court. So, you know, adding there, Monique, that this 10 cent provider fee is part of our state plan amendment and has been approved by CMS for more than 25 years. And, and it took maybe JR reminding the folks how you spell CMS. That's right. You know, we, 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 we joked that um, we call it CMS, but it, it's really CMMS, right? Um, so we had a situation where there's the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services approving a state plan amendment, allowing this imposition of the 10 cent provider fee for a Medicaid program. But then the argument was, is that, oh, CMS regulations would preempt this under the Medicare uh, provisions, and we just we just feel that that's nonsensical. Yeah, I, I have to say I agree with your view on that. And as I was learning about this case from you, that was very much on my mind. That it's ironic, you know, they're saying that they're preempted by this, but the program is actually approved through through CMS to begin with. Now, you know, you took this lawsuit. It was specifically against Express Scripts, but were other were other PBMs using the same excuse of preemption to not pay the ten cent provider fee? We believe so, and ESI was at least upfront about it because they sent a letter to uh, our members saying that they were taking the position in late last year that they were not going to reimburse that amount. So um, uh, to, to give ESI some credit, they at least were, were, were upfront about their belief on, on preemption. But um, we do see other PBMs taking a much broader view of, 
of preemption than than we think is appropriate. Yeah, I asked because I was curious if PCMA. So for so for people who are listening who aren't familiar with who PCMA is, the Pharmaceutical Care Management Association is the trade lobbying association for the largest PBMs. And they often weigh in on cases like this, and they'll they they've fallen back on the the rationale of preemption uh, a number of times in the past. Uh, did they also weigh in on this? Did they you know come in and offer their support to the other side, or did they do not, something else? Not not yet. Not yet. Okay. They put up some and, billboards. They took some te- some some ads out <laughs> just to try to uh, try to trash us a little bit. Um, but uh, they haven't weighed in with a, with any findings. They haven't been happy with you all in Louisiana, I gather, for some time now. I know uh, last fall you had an altogether different run-in uh, with uh, with CVS. And uh, did the billboards premiere after that, Randall, or was it right around the time that you, that you knew you were going to be going they, they- for U.S. District Court? No, no, they came in. Uh, they came in with our activities uh, to encourage the state to look at pharmacy benefit manager contracts and require that they be in a tr- more transparent manner. And CBS objected very broadly to that. You know, you can't save money if you know what money is there. It's an amazing concept that they can't save the money they want to save if they're going to tell you what money they're saving. <laughs> Yeah, there, the the whole uh, you know we 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 won't tell you the truth. You can't handle the truth. Is a it's, I can't believe it's been able to go as far as it has. But right. very much to your point, uh, and I I'm intrigued by the strategy you're taking on the billboards. Do you want to say anything about that now, or do you just want to hold off and surprise everybody down the line? No, I I, I think that we can say it. That you know they they took some ads out in all the papers in Louisiana to talk about the big bad independent pharmacies, uh, CVS. Uh, actually took the uh, took the floor with one of their leading uh, leading persons in the benefit manager side of their business of the state legislature and said, look, we're only 135 pharmacies in Louisiana and you've got 400 or more of these independents. They're the big guy here. We're, we're not. You know, what, what they don't focus on is they're pushing everything they can toward mail order and they've got these pharmacies and maybe they only have 135 but they don't want to serve disadvantaged communities they don't want to serve rural communities they want to be the place that you can stop and grab your liquor grab a magazine grab some candy and some cheap cosmetics and get some prescriptions filled possibly you know they want to have that ad in our major newspapers on sundays um, and you get, take that circular and run down and buy the things that they're advertising. But they truly don't want their pharmacist that we all know well to be healthcare providers. They don't give their pharmacist the opportunity to see the patient, to talk with the patient, to help improve their healthcare. You know, I had a, I had a, a newspaper reporter call this week and said, who uses an independent pharmacy in Louisiana? And I said, people who get the choice choose to use an independent pharmacy in Louisiana. Because if the only reason you're not using an independent pharmacy is that somebody has told you you can't, and the people telling you you can't are the big PBMs. So what they've, um, they took out some billboards and they placed them up around town, going to the Capitol, that independent pharmacies 
are increasing the cost of prescription drugs in Louisiana. They've got a website out in Louisiana and I think a number of other states, Affordable Rx, and they want to pull this different information and they want to make it look like it's local. But if you look at all those different things, I think it's Affordable Rx and then the post office abbreviation of the state. And so all of them have the same graphics, the same messaging, the same information. I don't want to be misleading the legislature. I don't want to be misleading the public. So if they think that independent pharmacies are increasing the cost of prescription drugs in Louisiana, we have asked the legislature to investigate that, to call us forth for a hearing and explain why the independent pharmacies are or are not uh, increasing the cost of prescription drugs. You know, I was at a pharmacy yesterday and because of a law that we passed, this patient had a drug for Parkinson's. Express Scripts had a $300 copay on a drug that the pharmacist paid $96 for. And then they were telling the pharmacist that they were going to reimburse them in total $916. What the pharmacist did, because we have passed a law in Louisiana that allows that pharmacist to be upfront with their patients, because they could see that that patient had a lesser cost alternative than just paying the copay on that drug, they sold that drug to the patient to cover their cost of acquiring it and not charging a $300 copay, not thinking that they were going to get some $900 amount in their till in order to sell that drug that cost one-tenth of that reimbursement that they were going to get. But also, that's a Medicare Part D plan, and that pharmacist had to have this fear that the way the big PBMs are handling Medicare Part D, Part D they'll run into the pharmacist in 60 days and take 90% of that money back from them. So it ends up costing the patient more, and then they take back from the pharmacist more money than the pharmacist was able to get and, and cost above the drug. So we've got to be very, very focused on these shenanigans and the, the costs that PBMs add to healthcare for the plan sponsors, the states, and for the citizens who are, are needing a prescription. You know that old saying about follow the money? So I, I'm with Pharmacists United for Truth and Transparency, which probably the people who are listening know that because I also host the podcast. But before doing this work, that was just a trite saying. And what I have found after everything I've learned, and you just described only a few layers of how incredibly complex it is by design in order to profit. But before I started doing this work, you know, I, it was so complicated. And one day I realized, you know, if you just follow that little trail all the way over to, you know, the Fortune 100, you will see in the top 15 or maybe 20 who these companies are that are engaging in these, you know, revenue schemes, yep. charging the patient more, charging the pharmacy more, finding ways to dodge their, their, their liabilities, right? And, and what I found interesting about this, this case that you presented, and, and I'm going to ask uh, JR a question in a moment about that, but what I found interesting about this case is that it reminded me so much of what was happening last fall when you were having an, not the same argument with CVS, but this whole matter of negotiating a contract 
And then I believe you had, you had several hours of, of conversation and negotiation with CVS. And it was, I, I want to say, if I, memory serves, it was just on whether or not they were going to follow the state law. Is that right? That's it. That's it. They, they wanted to uh, be able to have the contract read that CVS would follow the laws as CVS determined the laws were applicable. And uh, our focus was the laws had been passed by the legislature. We had seen the way that the PBMs, and you don't have to go to the Fortune 100 or the Fortune 15. CBS will tell you they are Fortune 5. They're number five. And they wanted to be able to uh, have ambiguous language in that contract. We pushed for and had added to that contract the language we used in the legislation and the activity by action is defined in that contract now as what are illegal. So JR, going back over to you now in, in this lawsuit. So you you were in court last, was it last week or the week before? It, it was not that long ago. That's right. And then the judge rendered his decision. Tell us a little bit about the decision, what he said, you know, what what you see will mean for the future just we'd love to know what your what your thoughts are and what your plan is here moving forward yeah so we um we 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 filed it as a, a declaratory judgment uh request to that that just legally is it it asked the court to answer a question you know that that and and that's that's what a deck action does is it poses a question essentially and says judge you know there's this there's this controversy we're not asking for money we're not asking for anything other than for you to tell us what the law is. Are we right or are they right? And that's what we initially filed. ESI responded with a motion to dismiss, saying that we couldn't even get an answer to the question because Medicare preemption was so clear. And the judge um, considered all of those arguments. ESI um, filed their motion in brief. We filed our motion in brief. Uh, ESI then filed a reply. Um, we had oral arguments in front of the, the federal judge, and the judge was very pointed in his questions on both sides, and he was very knowledgeable about the, the arguments that both sides were, were, were putting up. And then um, a week later, we received the judge's written rulings in which he found that there was no support for ESI's argument for a, a broad preemption argument, the, the field preemption argument, and the court ruled that the United States Fifth Circuit Court of Appeal, which has over which has jurisdiction and oversight of Louisiana, Texas, and Mississippi, that they had not set up such a broad rule for Medicare preemption. And so he wasn't going to go there. And then he said, well, what standards are there? Or is there kind of an actual conflict? And the judge ruled that, uh, no, yeah, there, were, there was not a standard that ESI pointed to that conflicted with what the, the Louisiana statute. So that was the sum of his opinion. It, it's an important opinion. Um, you know, going forward, we will ask for that decision to be the, you know, essentially the, the ruling of the case rather than just on a motion, denying a motion to dismiss. So those are the those are the next steps. So does that mean that you'll actually go, be going back to court and being in front of a judge again, or what does that look like? 
Yes, um, we'll be back uh, uh, back in court and, and asking for that uh, um, that ruling. And I have a question for you. So if if this were to go a different direction, the you know, judge decided that it, they were in fact you know preempted and the pharmacies weren't able to pick this up or somehow couldn't, what, what kind of financial impact would this be having on the Medicaid program, do you think, there in Louisiana? Well, this is, this is the interesting thing about the two statutes, the two federal regulations. Medicaid, for, for any fee like this 10 cent provider fee to be legitimate, it has to be uniform and broad-based. And so you can't pick and choose on which prescriptions you're going to base this fee uh, because then that would destroy the uniform and broad-based nature of, of it and run afoul of the state plan amendment. And so it, it could have um, very significant impact, just not just necessarily on 10 cents per prescription not being paid, but more so um, just the throwing into uncertainty the plan itself. Um, MJ certainly has a lot more experience on on the Medicaid program and so she might be able to add something as well as Randall, but that's 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 what I see being the major impact. And MJ, what do you think? Well one, I don't think anybody really knows the number of scripts that these entities have not been reimbursing the state on. Therefore, you know, what are we looking at as far as dollars that could be benefited once they're matched with the federal dollars to benefit the Medicaid program, such as the pharmacy program? And, you know, I'll be biased with the pharmacy program, <laughs> but, um, <laughs> you know, no one really knows the answer to that. You know, and this has been an ongoing issue, and for Medicare, those claims really go back to 2005, 2006. So we're talking about an extremely long period of time and probably millions of prescriptions. So it's millions of dollars that are impacted there. So it's very significant to the Medicaid program and the citizens of Louisiana and the pharmacists. Yeah, and I asked I asked you that. I'm so glad that you, you know, went through the explanation and carried it all the way out to the, the taxpayers of Louisiana and the pharmacy providers, because again, it seems like it's so small, a 10 cent provider fee, and, and it's maybe not as jaw dropping as discovering that your state has been paying somewhere between six and $9 per prescription more for Medicaid prescriptions because CVS was you know, engaging in egregious spread pricing, which they have in several states as we've begun to discover. This is one of those things that is so small that you would almost think it would slip by, except for that it is affecting the pharmacies and the patients and the citizens, which is what makes it, I think, such a compelling case. Randall, have you seen or heard from any of the other states? I know there's a number of groups out there watching what y'all are doing, but I was just curious if anyone has, you know, talked to you about it or if you've heard from other states that see that they might have some work to do in this area for themselves. Well, I think that we've got a number of states that are all focusing on watching what others are doing and looking 
at what the PBMs are getting caught doing and it's causing us all to look and see what we can do. Because when it comes around to it, we understand that PBMs and their processing of a claim is a benefit. But how much should you get paid for just processing a claim? When we see these folks that are pushing forth these extraordinary costs, and those costs are real costs that are costs that are being borne by states, by health plan sponsors, employer groups, and, and very particularly by individuals that their health care costs much, much more than it should because these folks are managing their business in a manner to, to tick up and up and up on the Fortune 500 list. So you've all been working together for some time. As we bring our episode to a close, I am curious. So I, I've been doing a lot more work in the field, working uh, directly with pharmacists in Arizona. Uh, we, we took a page out of LIPA's book, actually, and are working on implementing uh, some anti-transaction fee legislation here. So I've had the chance to be in these stakeholder meetings and experience what you all have been experiencing for quite a while now. I'm just I'm curious, and I, JR, I want to start with you. What is your favorite thing about the work you do for LIPA or just or even, you know, those moments when you're maybe up against the opposition and you see them doing their you know, opposition thing that they do, which well, I think everyone well, who's listening knows, right? Well, since Randall is on the panel, I obviously have to answer that my favorite thing about working with LIPA is being able to work with Neil Johnson. So, I mean, that, <laughs> that's the obligatory answer. But, but the, the truthful answer is, um, it, and, and I said it when, when you introduced me, it's the right fight and it's the right side of the fight. You mentioned earlier, the top three PBMs are Fortune 13 companies. Their, their power and wealth is, is incredible. And also what I think is so fascinating about the PBMs is that educated, sophisticated people have no idea. They absolutely have no idea that there's these pharmacy benefit managers that are in between, what do you mean, my, in between my insurance and in between the pharmacy and they're taking and what do they do and how do they, you know, and, and they're setting the price and they're setting the formulary and they're the ones that run uh, mail order pharmacies. And it's been amazing doing this work and explaining the process of the PBMs to really, really, really smart people who have no idea. It's been intellectually challenging and, and tough work. I mean, you know, the PBMs are always represented by highly skilled lawyers, very well-credentialed attorneys and law firms and some of the biggest in, in the country. Uh, so, you know, that's, that's, that's challenging. But the truth of the matter is, is that the best thing about it is representing the pharmacies and trying to help them survive and thrive and do what they do. Because in a rural poor state like ours, the, the local independent pharmacist might be the only healthcare provider in the area. And look at the wonderful job that independent pharmacists have done in, in the COVID vaccination regimen. There was an article today that talked about um, an independent, a small independent pharmacist, I think in New York. And this, this independent pharmacist was one of the leading providers of vaccine in the whole state. And 
And, and that's what we see with, with, with our state and how our pharmacists are staying late and making sure that the vaccines um, are, are, are distributed. And, you know, the, the, the interpersonal relationship that independent pharmacists have with members of the community is really unmatched. And in a state like Louisiana, we need that. And we, we need those healthcare providers where they are. And so I'm, I'm happy to do a little bit to, to help them do what they need to do. That's so well said. And I 100% agree with you. I switched from major pharmacies. I've always just been a major pharmacy user uh, to an independent pharmacy once I started learning and doing the work that I now do. And it has been such a wonderful experience. But, but even more than that, just seeing the work that independent community pharmacies are doing, especially in those smaller communities where people rely on them, it's, it's wonderful. And it, it, it really you know, shows so beautifully what the profession is about and what it's here for, which is care. So I just think you summed that up beautifully. MJ, I have a question for you that's a very different question. You, you come from the state side and right now there are states that are really investigating what is going on in the relationship with the PBMs. I just, I just got back from Tallahassee, Florida, where there's a lot of invest, there's not just investigation, there's controversy over two reports that have come out and, and what the PBMs may or may not be doing in their Medicaid program. I'm just curious for those states that either haven't started looking or don't know where to start, what, what would you say to them, uh, someone who's you know formerly overseen this program, what, what advice would you have or what would you say to them to help them maybe get started or start checking into things if they're feeling like maybe they should? Well, you know, I've been retired now nine years. I directed the pharmacy program for nearly 30 years. Uh, and we had a very aggressive pharmacy program. In fact, at the time, we called ourselves the Louisiana Pharmacy Benefits Program. So it's kind of interesting to me that, you know, now it's kind of like divided amidst all these PBMs in each state. And they have more staff than we ever could have dreamed of having while administering all this program. But, you know, I, I have not been there because I retired once the um, managed care organizations came into the Medicaid program and the PBMs. But I would certainly look, I think, with great staff that states can administer their program as they did before. And whatever is going to the PBMs monetarily, that they keep it within their state. Um, I, I think there's lots of potential for states to administer their programs, perhaps through one PBM and really identify what's going on. I think this has gotten so complicated and complex that there is no entity that truly knows what is going on. And that's a difficult place to be. Uh, you know, people don't know what questions to ask. You know, you don't ever see any reports. I mean, when I would work for Medicaid, I had to produce reports just continually. But 
I don't think there are any like reports that are publicly known, you know, from these five organizations within our state. And without any reporting, no one really knows what's going on. And I think that's kind of where we are. It's kind of frightening. I agree. The power that they have and the way that they've been able to design themselves into the you know position that has made them Fortune 13 companies, that level of thinking is not anything I would have ever gotten my head around. I mean, I I pretty direct when I say it's diabolical thinking. Uh, Randall, we are at the last question, and I am just curious. So this is LIFA's 20th anniversary. 20 years ago, a group of pharmacists got together and said, we're not going to stand for our profession to go the direction that it appears to be railroaded. What are the plans for the 20th anniversary? What are, what are you doing this year for that? We're going to keep working. That's what we've got to do is keep working because we've got patients in pharmacies that need access to each other in order to see our health care improve. We see this U.S. News and World Report uh, notice. I think we're number 46 in healthcare among the 50 states. Uh, we have a number of different reports come out. We can use the help. Part of that help of improving our health care is letting patients have access to a health care provider in their own community and not depend on getting that health care from uh, someone who's delivering it that happens to be driving a delivery truck and can't answer the questions. And I think that's the mic drop answer right there. So with that, we will bring this episode of the PBM Reform podcast to a close. I'd like to thank my guest, J.R. Whaley. Thank you, J.R. Thank you. And MJ Terbon, thank you so much, ma'am. It was wonderful to have you. Thank you, Monique. And Randall, you are such a joy. It's always great to talk with you. Thank you so much for being with us today as well. Thank you all, folks. Have a great evening. Thank you. And for all of our listeners, if you enjoyed this episode, please let us know in the comments below and we'll see you on a future episode. PBM reform is not a textbook process. This component of healthcare insurance will take time to figure out and will consist of many different players of the pharmaceutical supply chain. If you'd like to contribute information, data, or your own insights on PBM reform, please contact the Pharmacy Podcast Network. Send your email to publisher at pharmacypodcast.com or call us at 412-585-4001.